Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of 2 Samuel. The Old Testament passage of 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel in chapter number 24. 2 Samuel in chapter number 24. We are finishing up our last two messages on the life and ministry of David. We started off with uh, king Saul as he was raised up to prominence as God had placed him to be the king after the people demanded a king. We watched as, as Saul rejected God, that God rejected Saul. And eventually God raised up David, a man after his own heart. Now David did nothing, didn't lift a single finger to become king. It was something that God placed him into. But it wasn't an easy road that during that time Saul grew very jealous and tried to persecute David. And we traveled with David as he ran from Saul as he fled, as he made wise decisions, and as he took matters in his own hands and saw the consequences of those. Eventually, we saw David as he became king. And for a while, he sought after, after God. But then there came a time where David had one night in sin. And that one night in sin led to a slew of consequences. And as a reminder, the book of Second Consequences or the book of 2 Samuel, is a book that traces consequences. It lists that there's one night in sin that led to a tragedy within the life of a family. And we can see that traced up all the way up to 2 Samuel chapter number 20. Starting in 2 Samuel chapter 21 through 24, what we have listed here is important stories that do not fit that specific narrative of the tracing the consequences within David's life. And each of these are important stories. These are important events that happen in David's life. And then we find ourselves to the last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24. And we could find an event that occurred in David's life that once again is going to have lasting consequences. And we can see behind it that we have a great God. We had mentioned this morning in a separate message that we have a God who laid all the foundation when the fullness of time was come. That we have a God who arranged all of history, prepared the location, fulfilled all of prophecy to bring Jesus Christ here on this earth. Once again, we're going to see God's hand working in all the background, watching things, and that we could see that God is able to use human instrumentality and even human mistakes to still arrange God's plan. And so if you don't mind, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24, and notice with me if you don't mind starting at verse 1. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1, the Word of God says this, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now 
through all the tribes of Israel, even from Dan, even to Beersheba. And number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, How many soever they be, a hundredfold, that they may, that the eyes of the Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Er, on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad towards Jazer. And as they came to Gilead to the land of Telatimahashi, they came unto Dan-Janan, and about to Zidon, and came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites, and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people, and David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee of one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or will thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there may be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and... <coughs> And said to the angel that destroyeth the people, It is enough. Stay now thy hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arana the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David, and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana say, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, 
to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And RNS said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt offering, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of oxen for wood. And all these things did Aronah as a king give unto the king. And Aronah said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aronah, Nay, I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and a peace offering. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. And with this passage, we commonly call this time that David numbered the people. David numbered the people. And with the Lord's help, we want to explore this and see the God behind all of this, that David numbered the people. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we continue with this, this is an important event that on the surface we could just see that we could see consequences and tragedy. But yet beyond this event, beyond this, we can see that the consequences go further. And that we could see that you're a great God who had a plan after all. Help us to be able to trust this great God. That in the midst of the circumstances, that we can look beyond the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances. To see that you're a God who has everything well in hand. And that you're a God who's so wise, so big, so powerful. That you could use human mistakes and human frailties to still get across your will. Thank you, God, for being that good of a God, that big of a God, that amazing of a God. Help us now as we open up the scriptures that we could relay that. Again, I don't have the ability within myself. So once again, I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit. I surrender what I have, my thoughts, my ideas, my ambitions, my goals, my thoughts of how things ought to go. I give them to you and I trust you to get your own work accomplished through your precious word. Thank you, Lord, for being a wonderful God. And just show yourself high, holy, and lifted up tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we come to this event, this event is, seems isolated from the rest of 2 Samuel. In fact, it is an important event and it is separate from the things. But yet, it's the last chapter for a reason because it's going to affect the rest of Bible history. The first thing I'd like to show you here is David's orders for numbering the people. David's orders for numbering the people. If you don't mind, look with me in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24 and notice with me in verse 1 and we come immediately to a very controversial statement. Notice with me in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, that pronoun there is actually God, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, this seems to be troublesome to a lot of people because they say, hey, look, did God cause David to sin? That God looked upon all those people and said, I need to do something against them, so I need to trigger an event. And so God 
chose and forced and twisted David's arm and forced him to sin? Is that what happened? You add to it another complex situation as you look at the parallel passage in the book of 1 Chronicles 21. We don't have to turn there, but may I tell you, in that passage, instead of saying that God moved him, it says that Satan moved him. So here is a passage here that a lot of people begin to have difficulties with. They said, in one passage, God caused David to do this, and God caused David to sin. The other passage, it says Satan moved it. And this causes a theological uh, knot that some people have a hard time untying. But you understand that we take a passage, and we can't just look at that passage, but we see the whole light of it. Do you understand that we never see the big picture? There are things that we don't see within our own lives. There are things that we're blinded of, but God is an all-knowing God. We also know that there's a God who can even use Satan to get his work accomplished. That he could say, Satan, you go ahead, I'm going to take my hands off. I give you permission to go ahead and work in this situation. And so we know that it wasn't God who orchestrated David to sin. We know that God is actually looking at a big picture, which we'll cover in just a bit. But God had given Satan permission to stir up David. Now David sinned after his own volition. There is no such thing as the devil made me do it. We understand that Satan could put a temptation down. He could work things down. But we know that David had a choice. How do we know he had a choice? Because he was warned this was not right. Now let me also pause here and freely admit we do not know what sin exactly David did. We know that the prompting was to number the people, but there's no specific thing. There's no commandment that says, thou shall not number the people. We know that there's some principles given. For example, someone we say, well, didn't, wasn't the people numbered in the book of Numbers? That's why it's called the book of Numbers. That at the beginning of the book of Numbers, you had the people numbered. Forty years later, at the end of the book of Numbers, the people are numbered again, and they counted the people. But both of those times, it was God that prompted it. We do not, we freely admit, we do not know what specific sin it was, but we do know that David knew it was wrong. He was warned, but it was against. Maybe it was something that God had relayed through the preacher. Maybe it was Gad that one day had said, you know, don't number the people. You need to be satisfied with what God gave you. And you need to uh, um, trust that God knows what's best. Maybe it was something as simple as that, that the preacher had relayed information. But whatever it is, David had got it in his mind and in his heart. And remember that your heart can lie to you. That he got in his mind and his heart. You know what? I need to count how many people I have. And the people that he was specifically counting was those who were able to go to war. In those days, that's how you counted a population. You weren't interested in the little kids. They can't fight for you. You're not worried about the old men. They can't fight for you. You're not worried about the lady folk. You're looking for those big, strong, burly guys who are able to go to war, who were healthy. Those are the people that were counted. And so when David pulled in Joab and said, Hey, Joab, you're my general. I got a job for you. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I want you to go count the people. And Joab said, wait a second. Now, by the way, if, 
If Joab becomes the moral conscious, if he's the guy who's actually saying, whoa, there's probably something bad wrong. And again, this is why we say that David had a choice that God was so gracious, he put a warning in front of David. And David chose to go against the warning, which is a principle we've covered before, by the way, that God often puts obstacles in our way and we have to climb over those obstacles to get to the sin. God does that out of his graciousness to try to keep us from sin. So again, we know that God is behind the scenes. And that God is going to use a human instrumentality, human mistakes to get his work and will accomplished. At this time, he also allows Satan to have reign and Satan helps work in David's heart. But David had a choice. He was not forced to sin, not by God and not by Satan. It was something he chose to do. Now, again, what sin it was, we don't know. More than likely, it was disobedience of some sort where David clearly knew it was wrong. Again, how do we know that? Because later on, David confessed it as sin and said, I should not have done that. It was something that he knew about. But we can see that he came to the place where he was going to count the people. Joab, go count the people. But, but David, don't do this. You don't need to do this. Joab, don't fight with me. Go do it. Yes, sir. And so for nine months, they go and do a census. For nine months, they go from Dan to Beersheba. Remember, this is how they spoke about their borders. That Dan was the uppermost northern city. Beersheba was the southernmost border. So what they were saying is from the top to the bottom, they did the count. From Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, they went and did the count. And it actually goes through and talks about where they parked and where they made a camp and they did a survey. And then they go to another place and they would do the survey and try to count the people. And for nine months, they did this. Finally, Joab comes back and gives the number of the people. Notice with me in verse number nine. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there was, were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now this is significant because we know that when the children of Israel crossed into the Red Sea, uh, crossed in the Jordan River and came into the promised land, there was approximately 2 million, maybe 2.5 million people. Now, using this as a census, we estimate there's about four to four and a half million people. The population has doubled at this time in David's time. Things are flourishing. They've got plenty of people. But we go from David's orders from numbering the people to hear David's choices for numbering the people. David's choices for numbering the people. So nine months this census has been going on. For nine months the people have been counted. For nine months David has been wrong with God by doing something he knew he wasn't supposed to do. And so finally after the census is done, Joab comes and reports. Notice in verse 10. And David's heart smote him that after he had numbered the people, and David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done 
very foolishly. Now again, David is convicted. Conviction comes from God for the purpose of us getting right. And so David's heart convicted him. After hearing the survey, realizing what happened, getting the result. And by the way, isn't it always the way that sin doesn't satisfy us? We fight so hard to get that sin accomplished. We work so hard. And when it comes to pass, it's empty and it's dry. And all that's left is we messed up and I shouldn't have done it. So David's now convicted. He confesses his sin and tries to get right with God. But there's consequences on his way. Notice with me in verse 11. For when David was up in the morning, <coughs> the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad. David's seer saying, go and say unto David, thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things, choose thee of one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So God sends the preacher Gad to come knock on David's door and says, I got a message from the Lord. Because of what you did, you get some choices. You have three choices to choose from, pick which one you, you want to happen. Verse 13, here are the choices. Verse 13. 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in the land? So choice number one. David, how does this sound? Seven years of famine. So seven years where it doesn't rain. Seven years where your people are going to be hungry. Seven years where nothing's going to happen. The crops aren't going to grow. And remember, this is a desert society that's dependent on rain for crops. So when famine doesn't happen... This is going to be a very life-threatening thing. And for it to happen for seven years, this is going to be something that's going to affect the land for a long time. So David, choice number one. How's that sound? You don't like that? How about choice number two? Notice with me again in verse number 13. So Gad came unto David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or will thy flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? So here's choice number two, David. You want to run for your life for three months while your enemies are chasing after you? Now David's already done this twice or once and a half. Once before Absalom he ran and that wasn't any fun for him. And then he had Bathsheba try to come up and try to put a rebellion. They quelled that and David's already had his taste of being on the run. He was on the run from Saul. He was on the run from Absalom. The idea of another three months is probably not appealing and was probably an awful sounding. So seven years of famine or three years on the run. How's that sound? Or maybe you want another choice. So choice number three. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or will thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or... That there be three days pestilence in thy land. Now advise and see what answer I shall return unto him that sent me. So Gad comes up with this last one. If you don't want the seven years of famine. You can choose three months on the run. Or you could choose three days of plague and pestilence. Three days where insects come and they kill your people. Three days where it sweeps upon the whole nation. Which do you pick? Tell me which one and I'll tell God. Now, I want you to imagine you're king. You're responsible for four and a half million people. Four and a half million people are on your shoulders. You messed up, but now the people have to be, be dealt, uh, 
deal with the consequences of leadership's actions. So David, seven years of famine, three months of running, or three days of pestilence. Pick one now. What would you choose? Seven years of watching your people suffer. Three months on the run, or three days where thousands upon thousands of your people die in just three days' time. What do you choose? You could imagine the Jeopardy clock now picking up. The music going on. Waiting for him to give an answer. And you know what David did? David did probably the same things you would have done. What did he do? He said, I can't answer. I have no clue what to say. Notice what he says. Verse number 14. And David said unto Gad, I am a great, in a great strait. He says, this is a big problem. Uh, I don't know what to do. He says, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So he comes to, and says, all right, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to let God choose. God knows which one's best. I mean, seven years of famine, that's horrible. Three years on the run, oh, I don't want that. Three days of plague? How can I choose? How can I be known as the king that said, hey, I chose plague. Your family members died because I chose plague. How can you be the guy that said, hey, you know what? I chose seven years of famine. So these last several years, that's what I chose for you. What a heavy responsibility. So David says, hey, God knows which one's best. He knows which one is going to be the most merciful. Let's let God choose. Now, he was probably choosing like you would have chosen. Please, God, just take the burden away. Just make it all go away. I mean, that's what you'd probably be saying, right? Have you ever stood before your parents and they gave you a choice? All right, you stand in the corner. Are you grounded from your room or you get the spanking? And the child looks at And they're hoping that if they stall long enough that the parent will just say, fine, you're nothing. And uh, no, it didn't work. So God chose for him. So what happens? Verse number 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence. Three days of pestilence is what God sent forth. So for three days, a pestilence upon Israel from the morning uh, even to the time appointed. So three days, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So David started off by his pride, his disobedience. We don't know exactly what the sin was. Most likely, God told him not to do it, and he did it anyways. But out of those people he counted, he was so proud. People believed the sin of pride was involved. Look at all the people. Look at all my nation. And God says, see how easy they go? 70,000 men. Three days time gone. Could you imagine being a leader, being a shepherd, hearing the reports after reports of thousands of people dying in just three days time. It broke David's heart. Three days. Which now brings us to a third thing that happens in this story. David's purchase for the numbering of the people. David's purchase for the numbering of the people. Pick it up with me in verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It 
is enough. After hearing all of that, that's probably a comforting phrase. That's enough. That's it. That's all we want. Here the angel, the destroying angel, stretching out his hand. He's looking over Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about ready to be destroyed. The angel's stretching out his hand and God says, stop. That's enough. No further. That's it. And so the angel stops. God didn't tell it to do anything else. So it's waiting for orders. It's standing there. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thy hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people. Can you imagine that sight? That the people uh, and his servants come up and say, look, the angel's there. Let's go see it. I don't know why you'd want to go see it, but David goes up and, and looks and sees that angel and it's it stopped in place. God said, stop. So it stopped. And David goes up and looks at it and looks at this being that has the power to destroy all of Jerusalem. He looks at this. He goes to God and he begins to pray. Wouldn't you? He says, lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. David says, don't hurt the sheep no more. I'm the one who messed up. Please punish me, but don't affect them anymore. Stop it, please. Don't let it go on. I messed up. God's got David's attention now. Verse number eight, and Gad, which is the prophet, the preacher, came that day to David and said to him, go up, rear up an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on towards him. And, and Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. Now here's Aruna. Could you imagine? He's going about his day. Probably, who knows? I, you know, I get different images in my mind. I'm, I can imagine this huge towering angel is standing on this threshing floor. This fleshing floor is one of the highest hills overlooking Jerusalem. And so you can imagine, in my mind, I can imagine this huge angel reaching his hand out. I can imagine David in his palace in Jerusalem looking up and seeing this angel. And he prayed. And the preacher came and said, go reel up an altar there. So he begins to climb the hill. Aruna sees David and his servants coming up. And could you imagine what a sight that is? That you're minding your own business. And here's the king. So Aruna does what every normal person does, goes down, shows respect unto the king. What can I do for you? Oh, how can I be a blessing? What can I do? Notice verse 21. And Aruna said, wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. Well, Aruna looks at this and says, hey, if that's what's necessary, you don't have to buy it from me. I'll give it to you. Here's some oxen. You take the property. Hey, there's some tools for wood. I mean, take, take what you want now. Well, that's a humble response. I mean, you do whatever you got to do. You can almost imagine whatever it takes to get that thing off. Get it away. Notice as he goes on, verse 22. And Aruna said unto David, Let the Lord, the king, take and offer up which seemeth good to him. Behold, there be oxen for burnt offering and threshing instruments and other instruments of oxen for wood. And all these things did Aruna as a king. Notice that phrase, as a king, gave unto the king. 
Now Aruna said, here, you have need of this, I have it, you, I give it to you. He's giving it almost because he's the owner, he's the king of his property, I'll give this to you. But there's something off with this. Notice if you don't mind as David responds to this. Verse number uh, 24. And the king, that's David, said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee of a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. David says, I understand there's a price for serving the Lord and there's no shortcuts. I appreciate your heart for giving to me this. But it will cost me nothing if you gave it to me. It's almost like someone who said, here, you don't have to tithe anymore. I'll pay the tithe for you. You know what you'll do is you'll ruin someone's faith. They don't have to trust God for anything. There's a cost that comes from serving God. And there's a personal cost for following after him. So David says, I can't do it. If it's not going to cost me nothing, I want to buy it. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar of the Lord and offered the burnt offering and the peace offering. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. So we have this account here. David bought it, built an altar, sacrificed to God. And then it's the end of the chapter. But it's not the end of the story. Remember at the very beginning, it was God that prompted this event. It was God that worked, God that used Satan and used human mistakes to get his will accomplished. Now this is where it's going to get good. Because God is a master of history. He knows all of history. He knows what's going to occur and he knows what's important. You see, this hill has been mentioned in scripture before. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. When this is nothing but prairie land, nothing but uninhabited. And God raised up a man by the name of Abraham. He had already called him from the Ur of Chaldees. And he had promised him a son. And Abraham waited for that son for a hundred years before he finally got a son. And now, all these years later, Abraham loves that son. He loves Isaac. He's been watching Isaac grow up. And Isaac has become a young man in his own right. About 33 years. Abraham's 133. And God says, I want to check out Abraham and see if he loves me more than his answer to prayer. So Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I'm going to tell you of. And I want you to bring your son. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. And you know what Abraham said? Yes, sir. And so Abraham grabbed his son, grabbed two servants, and they grabbed the wood. They grabbed everything they need, but they didn't have a ram. And so they go up to a place, and God says, that hill right there. Abraham says, yes, sir. He sits the two servants behind, takes Isaac up. Isaac carries his own wood. And as Isaac's going up, he says, here's the wood, here's the fire. But where's the ram? And, God said, and Abraham said, God will provide himself a ram. And so they go up. Remember, Isaac is 33 years old. He's a young man. He's not like a little kid. There was no way Abraham could have forced Isaac on that altar. Isaac willingly laid himself down on the altar because he trusted his father. And so... Isaac lays down, trusting his father. Abraham, 
obedient to God, takes the knife. The hardest thing he ever did to it in his life was obey God. Went to sacrifice his son. And an angel said, stop, stop, that's enough. You're good. Take him down. God knew, knows your heart, knows that you love him more than even the son of promise. And he pulls Isaac over. And wouldn't it so happen that right over there, stuck in some bushes, there was a ram. And Abraham called this place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides. We go several years later on that same hill is another man that God chose by David. And it is on this hill that God demands another altar and a sacrifice to him. But this hill is not done with. Up to this time, David did not own this hill. It was in the hand not even of a Hebrew person, but of a Jebusite, of a Canaanite. And because of the prompting of this, David purchased this land and he now owns it. God told David that he's not able to build a house for God, but Solomon was. So David prepares all the materials and one of the first things Solomon does when he becomes a king is he sets up a temple. And guess where he sets up that temple? He sets it up right here on this threshing floor. Right here on that same hill where Abraham went to go sacrifice Isaac. But it's not done yet. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the gospel record of Luke. The gospel record of Luke in chapter number 2. We are very familiar with the Christmas story. Luke, uh, gospel record of Luke chapter 2 gives us the details of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and there was no room in the inn. It gives the account of the shepherds being uh, summoned by God and told that over there is the child of promise. But we know that the date that it continues on past that time. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 22. The gospel record of Luke chapter 2. And in verse number 22. And when the days of her, that's Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that open up the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, once again, to offer a sacrifice... According to that which is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Could you imagine this man? He's got old. But God said, guess what? You're not going to die until you see with your very eyes the promised Messiah. And so he'd been living out his days. God said, I'm going to see, see the Messiah. I can't wait to see the Messiah. What happens? Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse 26. And it was revealed unto him, Simeon, by the Holy Ghost, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. So the Holy Spirit led him one day and said, Simeon, let's go to the temple. And so off he went. And when the parents brought in the child, 
Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, Mary and Joseph have already had the shepherds come in the manger. Now, at this time, they're trying just to obey the law, sneak in and sneak out. They don't want a big deal. They don't want things. They're just trying to sneak in and sneak out. All of a sudden, this old guy sees them, turns and walks right to them. He sees the child. What happens? Verse number 28. Then took he him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now what happened is this man had been told by God he's not going to die until he sees the promised one. And so one day the Holy Spirit says go to the temple. So he goes to the temple and there's Mary and Joseph. They look like regular people. There's nothing standing out. They want to get in and get out. But here's Simeon. He comes and looks and says, can I see the babe? Sure. And he picks up the child and says, here he is! It's him! Look! It's him! Well, that's not what Mary and Joseph wanted. They want to get in and out. Now this crazy guy's got the kid and going up. Look, it's him. I've been waiting for him. This is the one that's come to light all the path for the Gentiles. It's him. It's him. Well, but you know, God's not going to allow his son to be born without some sort of fanfare. And it's on this same site that Simeon takes Jesus up and is promoting him. Well, the crowd begins to build and some attention starts to come out. What's this guy screaming about? What's this guy all excited about? Well, notice what happens then. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the rising of fall of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And yea, a sword shall pierce through my own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So he gives back the child and says, You want to know what you have here? That's him! Oh, this is the one. He's going to read people's hearts. He's going to know people's minds. He's going to be the one. This is the Messiah. Oh, she is okay. Thank you. Strange guy. Well, now that the crowd's building, attention has come a little bit more. Notice verse 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Penel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of four score and four years. So let's calculate this. She was married seven months, seven years after she was married, her husband died. Since that time, she's been a widow, never remarried. Four score, remember score is 20, so four times 20 is 80, 84. She was a widow of about, of, of about four score and four years. This is a lady that's pretty old. Which had not departed from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So this old lady comes out. This man's excited. He's making a big deal. So Anna the prophetess comes out. Her job, full-time job is to pray. Her full-time job is to get a hold of God and talk with him. So she comes out, sees Simeon make a big deal. She comes out, verse 38. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. And spake of him... To all them 
that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she comes out, sees everyone looking at the baby, and she gets out and starts preaching. Hey, this is him. This is where your salvation's coming from. He's going to save. He's going to redeem. If you want your sins forgiven, it's from this child here. This is the one you're going to trust in. This is God's promised one. Now this old lady's out here making a big deal. And this whole crowd's built up because Simeon's come. Now that the crowd's out here, this sweet little old lady comes out and starts pointing and says, this is the one that you're going to get your sins forgiven from. It's him. It's him. Well, you can imagine the crowd is not dispersing, but it's getting bigger. Mary and Joseph standing close together, the babe in their arms, looking at everyone, looking at them, looking at the baby. Would you feel uncomfortable? Probably. But God's making it known that this is a big deal. They're trying to get in and out. They're just trying to make their sacrifice and get out of here. But nope, God's making a big deal. This huge crowd <laughs> has looked for them and is being told, this is the child. And of course, we do know what this child did. This child grew up and about 30 years of age began a public ministry and began to preach. There were times that he would come to the temple and he would preach. He took a time where he opened up the scrolls and read from Isaiah and said, by the way, that's me. There were times he went to the court of the Gentiles. The place where the Gentiles were supposed to come and pray and get their answers to prayer. But instead of having prayer time, there was all of these merchants selling things in the way so someone could not come and pray. And Jesus chased him out. By the way, when he chased him out, the Bible says in the Gospel record of John that he made himself a scourge. Meaning that when he chased out those money changers, he didn't just happen to find something or take something from the table. What he did was called premeditation. He made himself a scourge and chased those people out. There was times he would preach and the Pharisees would hate him. There was times he walked into this temple and the people rejected him. And then another hill not too far away called Calvary. Jesus Christ died and paid that price. And then he rose again the third day. But that nearby hill was that threshing floor. That nearby hill was the hill where Abraham and Isaac died, <laughs> made the sacrifice. It was this hill that the temple was made on. You see, God was able to look at history and say, I want that hill. That hill's important to me. I've already had Abraham and Isaac, and I want that hill because I want that tabernacle to be built hill, that temple to be built here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow David to have his way. He wants to have pride. He wants to go ahead and do what he wants. I'm going to let him disobey. And there's going to be consequences for that, but I'm going to use those consequences to get my will accomplished. You know, sometimes... A parent will have some sin in their life. And as a result of that sin comes a child. And sometimes they don't know what to do with that child. But you understand that God knows what he's doing. And that God can do something even with that child. That child's not rejected of God. That God can use those. And you could go throughout history. You could find even preachers who were results of an illegitimate relationship. You could look and see that sometimes the worst things that happen to us, sometimes mistakes we caused in ourselves, that God is able to use those results and use those things to be things in our life to get His will accomplished. You know how humble it is that God will sometimes 
allow something to happen to someone else to teach me a lesson, to teach you a lesson? Because God knows what he's doing. The point here is, can you trust God? Can you trust that God knows what he's doing? Can you trust that God has the picture all in sight and he knows what needs to happen? Can you trust him? We all understand that we got small, finite minds. Small, finite vision. We do not have enough information to know what's going on. But God knows everything. You know, sometimes we look at the consequences in our life and we say, look at how bad things messed up. What can I do? And God says, I'm not worried about it. I allowed those specific consequences to get a specific result. And I could get my will accomplished. Isn't God smart? David said, I give the choice up to you. And God says, all right. And this is what I'm going to do with that choice. Can you trust God? Maybe there's a health thing in your life and you say, I would have never chosen this. Yeah, but God chose it for you and he knows what he's doing. Maybe you're having a financial thing and you say, I, don't, I didn't choose this. Yeah, but God chose it and God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Can you trust God? That's the underlining message here. Can you trust the God who sees everything? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.